0: you're listening to episode number 25 of the effective statistician today we are talking all about multiplicity and as a guest we have a world-class expert actually one of the world-class experts in this topic Alex Dimitrenko so keep on listening Welcome to another episode of The Effective Statistician with Alexander Schacht and Benjamin Pieske, the weekly podcast for statisticians in the health sector designed to improve your leadership skills, widen your business acumen, and enhance your efficiency. In today's episode we'll chat with Alex Dimitrenko about multiplicity and especially all the practical aspects around it. We'll of course go a little bit into the theory that we make it really, really high level and very, very actionable for you. This podcast is created in association with PSI, a global member organization dedicated to leading and promoting best practice and industry initiatives. Join PSI today to further develop your statistical capabilities with access to special interest groups, video on demand content library, free registration to all PSIs, webinars, and much, much more. Just visit the PSI website, psiweb.org, today to learn more about it and become a PSI member. Welcome to another episode of the Effective Statistician. And today we have another Alexander on the call. Hi, Alex, how are you doing? Uh, it's actually not Alexander, it's Alexei, as <laughs> so I just learned. Hi, Alexei, how are
1: you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for inviting me. I appreciate this opportunity.
0: And then we have, as usual, our co-host. Hi, Benjamin. Hi, Alex. Okay. Hi, Benjamin. Hi, Alex. Alex and Alex. <laughs> <laughs> Alex <laughs> and Alex, yeah. <laughs> so... Um, Alex, we we have worked together uh, at Lilly a couple of years ago, Um, but maybe you can start a little bit with an introduction of yourself, how you came to be uh, really a world-class expert on multiplicity and um, how your career has been up to now where you actually have your own company.
1: Uh, Yes, yes, of course, I'll be happy to to do that, I think this would be a natural starting point. So by way of outline, as we typically say at the beginning of our presentations, as uh, Alexander pointed out, uh, uh, we all uh, started at Lilly. In my case, my uh, career as a pharmaceutical statistician started back in 98, uh, just a little over 20 years ago. So I moved to Indianapolis after receiving a Doctor degree in statistics and um, I joined at that time a very rapidly growing statistical organization at Eli Lilly and I, I was very pleased to discover lots of opportunities. I was really thinking that you know this would be a great chance for me to help develop and apply innovative approaches to improve the design and analysis of Lilly's clinical trials. I remember that uh, it was only as a uh, statistician at Lilly that I learned about adaptive designs and I immediately embraced that concept. I wanted to work on company-wide initiatives to help facilitate the use application of adaptive designs. I did a little bit of work on analyzing QTC interval prolongation, I remember, and it was at that time, probably about 15 years ago, 15, 16 years ago, that I found a new exciting area of research. Novel methods for addressing multiplicity issues in confirmatory clinical trials. So that's when I discovered the joy of multiplicity and also adaptive designs. And um, I uh, started contributing fairly actively to multiplicity research, ended up writing quite a few. Uh, papers on this topic, and uh, was very happy to have an opportunity to collaborate with multiplicity experts across the industry, in academia, at regulatory agencies. Back in 2009, we published uh, what I I think was a very nice summary of multiplicity methods used in uh, clinical trials. It was a book published in the Chapman and Hall CRC Press series, which was co-edited by Professor Ajit Dr. Frank Bretz, and myself. So we collaborated with multiple experts in the field of multiple uh, comparisons. Uh, that's how I pretty much I got started and uh, continue to be actively involved in multiplicity research and uh, publishing books or book chapters that are generally related to this topic. I would like to mention very quickly that last year we published a book on uh, clinical trial optimization using R, and uh, one of the most important chapters of that was related to how we should use available information and the comp- and the tools, software tools that we have in our hands to help us find best, ideally optimal multiplicity adjustments in clinical trials. But I think we're probably going to return to this t- topic later on in this interview.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I think, I mean, maybe, maybe just to um, step one step back, uh, you know, how would you, how would you describe multiplicity? So w- what actually is it? I mean, I know many people work with it in different ways, but uh, how would you describe it in a rather short summary and saying, you know, what are the topics for, for beginner statistician?
1: Oh, sure. Yeah. I can give you maybe a short 10 minute summary. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this is a topic that's (laughs) near and dear to my heart, you know, I can, I, uh, it would normally take me a couple of hours, you know, which is the length of my short course on this topic, you know, but I will...
2: Just imagine you're doing a 60 seconds poster presentation.
1: (laughs) In that case, probably the best point to start is go back to um, a famous biblical story of uh, David and and Goliath. I'm sure that you have uh, heard the story multiple times, Um, the Israeli army versus the uh, Philistines and how David uh, managed to uh, uh, defeat Goliath uh, by throwing a stone at him. Everybody knows this part of the story, but very few people realize that when before that that battle actually took place that David actually walked over to a brook and he picked up not a single stone. He actually picked up five stones because he realized, he realized the power of multiplicity. And the Bible is actually surprisingly clear on this point. Was that when he, when he finally, you know, uh, brought down Goliath, was that the first shot? Maybe this was the, actually the fifth shot, you know, because he wanted to have, being a practical person, he wanted to have multiple shots on goal, you know, so that's what multiplicity is about. That is something that creates additional opportunities for us to show in the context of clinical trials now. We're going to, we're done with the biblical story. In the context of clinical trials, it's something that gives us more opportunities to characterize formally speaking the efficacy profile of novel treatments but there's a price of course that we will need to pay because there are multiple shots you know and some of those shots could lead to incorrect decisions you know so that's what this whole topic of multiplicity is about you know we need to find a way to efficiently then control that multiplicity realizing all the pros and potential cons of employing multiple objectives in clinical trials.
0: Yeah, I think the, um, the key is of course then to control the probabilities that we make um, false positive claims if we, uh-huh. if we, if we test, test too, too many times. And um, so, of course lots of people know the Bonferroni test um, where you just divide by the number of tests you have or, or similar approaches. And there's, you know, also very, very common way is um, these gating approaches where you basically kind of um, order your tests and then, you know, go through it step by step. Um, and when I'm discussing these with uh, with people, then there's very, very often the question, okay, if I build this kind of gating list, do I need kind of, you know, should I Put as many objectives in it as possible. So, because, you know, I can, you know, very often you have, don't know, 10, 20 endpoints in your trial, and you can, of course, all sort them in some kind of way.
1: Mm-hmm. How to best do this in practical situations, right? Yep.
0: So, so should we always test as many objectives in and put as many uh, objectives as possible into this, you know? Uh, basket that where we control the uh, primary uh, the the alpha level, or is it better to kind of you know restrict it to very very few? Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. That's that's that that's that's a great question. I assume that here we're now discussing confirmatory or pivotal clinical trials where we have to make sure that we satisfy appropriate regulatory requirements. Uh, Based on my experience doing multiplicity consulting over the past um, at least fifteen years, you know, uh, whenever I discuss this topic with statisticians or clinicians, for example, they all realize, of course, you know that one needs to use their best judgment to choose probably the most meaningful endpoints, but. Uh, Whenever marketing people enter those um, uh, discussions, they typically get overly excited and say, yeah, let's go for 20, let's go to 30 different endpoints. Uh, The reality, of course, you know, uh, regulatory agencies uh, encourages us to reduce the number of secondary objectives. For example, secondary endpoints to be able to uh, support, I guess, meaningful inferences. When you look at the recently published regulatory guidance documents, they, including the First of all, the uh, draft guidance by the FDA that you, as you may know, uh, was published in early, th- early 2017 on multiple points. And as you know, the European Medicines Agency uh, released their draft guideline in, um, I believe this was April or, or may, may of last year. This topic is not explicitly discussed because obviously our colleagues, regulatory agencies, do not want to give us those strict rules. In certain cases, Perhaps a larger number of endpoints could be justified from a clinical perspective. The reality, if you try to average over multiple clinical trials, clinical development programs that have employed several endpoints, several clinical objectives, you'll see that this number is typical, does not exceed five. Just for example, uh, one of the uh, first, probably one of the first successful applications of more complex gatekeeping procedures Uh, was um, the Lurazidone development program. I remember it very well because, again, this this is the program uh, where we were able to successfully show the benefits of using some of those um, multiplicity adjustments, gatekeeping procedures that were viewed by some people to be kind of overly complex, but everything worked out very nicely. At that time, this was over 10 years ago, they had uh, only two key secondary endpoints, and looking at some of the recent trials that I was involved with, uh, for example, the um, uh, famous COMPASS trial, uh, they just, the study was stopped early at in interim analysis. Uh, it's, it's a very, very large study in the cardiovascular um, uh, population with over 25,000 patients. They had um, uh, three key secondary points. So... My recommendation, of course, would be to work with your colleagues. I'm talking to statisticians and try to find the most meaningful secondary endpoints that will help you provide additional meaningful supportive evidence of efficacy relative to what you can infer based on the primary endpoint. And maybe I can quickly also uh, mention this uh, very interesting and uh, confusing topic of you, the specificity. I don't know how much you've heard about this, but this is something that... Maybe not to that extent applies to European regulatory negotiations and, and, and communications, but in the uh, United States, topic of pseudo specificity plays a fairly important role when it comes to when you begin working with certain divisions at the at the FDA. Basically, the idea is there is that when certain secondary endpoints are very closely related to the primary endpoint, they are considered pseudo specific and they should be removed from consideration. Unfortunately, there is no there is no simple definition of so, what it so, is. But
0: it's kind of when there's, a, from a statistical side, a pretty high correlation in terms, of, for example.
1: <laughs> no, unfortunately, no. It's, it's more of a clinical concept, and I believe it was developed, if you will, at the FDA, mostly in the context of neuroscience trials. Some of the FDA divisions would not really... Talk much about pseudo specificity when it comes to neuroscience trials. You would probably be expected to say something and address this concept of student specificity. Make sure that your secondary endpoints are not clinically related. Obviously, this 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 is what makes this concept somewhat somewhat mysterious and vague. You know, because what exactly is clinical? Yeah. Relationship
0: so, so I think I I think of, for example, certain studies in for example depression and your primary endpoint is a pretty kind of broad scale in terms of measuring all the different aspects of depression and then kind of your further endpoints that measure kind of more specific subdomains of the depression. Then, of course there's quite a high clinical correlation between between kind of your overall depression endpoint and certain subdomains of depression, yeah.
1: That's right, that's right, yeah. But you're making a very, very, it's a very good example, Alexander, you know, but and this is something that uh, FDA's division on psychiatry products would point out to you. If you were to present a very similar strategy to a different division, for example, recently I worked on uh, a series of migraine trials, you know, and those are... Reviewed those applications reviewed by FDA's Division of Neurology Projects products, you know, then they would go ahead and allow you to use components essentially of the primary endpoints as, as secondary endpoints. For them, see the specificity is not okay. that of a
0: concern. Okay, so it's it's really a case case by case uh, yeah. decision. Okay, that's yeah. right,
1: that's right. Yeah, unfortunately, the FDA's guidance on multiple endpoints uh, does not mention this topic at all.
2: Yeah and also to say you know the clinical uh, correlation may not be that obvious but you know sometimes you wonder why the statistical correlation <laughs> is that <laughs> obvious <laughs>
1: exactly <laughs> so, it's all kind of it's the, the beauty is in the eye of the, of the, of the beholder you know yeah, <laughs> It's yeah, subject, subjective
2: <laughs> so yeah but just um you know when um, we we mentioned that we you know for the for the rules that we do have you know the um that we do have objectives, several, let's say five objectives. And then, you know, once you test them and using multiplicity, so, you know, how do you communicate um, the objectives that are, you know, non-significant on uh, multiple testing, adjusted case, but are significant on the local level? So by itself, is there any guidance or...
1: At, at this point, my, my interpretation of the FDA's, for example, uh, draft guidance, you know, it's also based on uh, my experience with uh, multiple development uh, programs that have employed the increasingly more complex multiplicity adjustments, is that findings that were significant before a multiplicity adjustment. That's what you're referring to, but after an appropriate multiplicity adjustment, they are no longer significant. Those may still be presented in a product label, but they would simply not be identified as as, as significant as you, uh, as as you're kind of trying to visualize the content the content of a uh, typical uh, clinical uh, study section of a product label. Again, I'm, I'm talking in this case specifically about uh, the FDA review process, you know, they would present certain findings for, let's say, key secondary endpoints, and it will be uh, one or two multiple asterisks, you know, and the footnote would say, you know, those findings are significant. And um, when they're not significant, um, I guess the best way to communicate those findings uh, would be as um, descriptive. Perhaps they are still clinically meaningful, but. Uh, The sponsor cannot obviously claim uh, statistical significance. And I would say there's always a chance to at least discuss the clinical relevance of those findings in uh, appropriate clinical trial. Yeah, and that is kind
0: of the other part. So so I think we have different other people that would be very, very interested in these these topics. And if you write, for example, a clinical manuscript, I think I would always still mention that and, and just present maybe the um adjusted and the unadjusted p-value or if you know if you can't an adjusted p-value doesn't make sense based on your uh, multiplicity adjustment, at least kind of say, okay, on a on a local level that still is is, is significant. Because I think you know it Other people might have a completely different view on this topic than kind of the FDA or the sponsor, you know, in terms of what's important for them.
1: That, that is right. And actually, uh, uh, maybe to make a very quick comment related to this, uh, I, I, it sounds like it looks like the concept of a multiplicity adjusted p-value is too confusing for product labels. So most of the time, the actual original p-values are presented and then they're identified as either being significant or not significant. Wow, that's maybe even more confusing. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. You're looking at a significant p value, but there is no asterisk, so it's not significant after a multiplicity adjustment. But at least the the fact that before an adjustment, the p value was significant. That is that is communi- that that is communicated. To some yeah. Extent. I think um, how how
0: do you kind of if you would write a publication, what would be your kind of have you any kind of best practice how to kind of communicate it there.
1: How to communicate the general? Um, I guess uh, the general question is how to communicate multiplicity, right? How do we how do we communicate multiplicity adjustments to non-statisticians?
0: So, so that would be the first part, and uh-huh. the second part would be how to kind of communicate these in the best way these these findings that are on itself significant but are not significant on the after the multiplicity adjustment.
1: Uh-huh, uh-huh. Ideally, maybe stepping back, I think that all of this um, information that would be important and all of the potential outcomes would need to be ideally incorporated into the testing strategy and maybe in a few minutes we'll get to talk about how uh, clinical trial simulations help us um, uh, kind of take care of those potential outcomes and those potential inconsistencies in the future. Because when it comes to performing multiplicity adjustments in pubertal clinical trials, as you know, everything must be prospectively defined, which means that everything is set in stone and 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 signed in in blood, There 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 is no way back. So if something is not significant before an adjustment, something, I'm sorry, is significant before an adjustment, but after an adjustment is no longer significant, that is something that would be ideal for a project team to be prepared for for that uh discussion but maybe if i may again step back and kind of think about this general topic of how to best communicate some of those more complex concepts related to multiplicity to our colleagues it's obviously a bit of a, a bit of a philosophical question how do we facilitate general communication in this case and uh it probably is something that would apply to many other advanced statistical methods, including adaptive designs. I've talked to quite a few people who share their thoughts about how to best communicate some of those challenging statistical concepts to non-statisticians, and uh, I think this the general solution here is to try to focus on benefits rather than uh, technical features, and this would be conceptually similar to. How physicians communicate with patients, you know. To me, I've I've made this analogy on multiple occasions. When we think about the challenges that physicians face when they talk to phys- uh, patients who may not really know m- know much about the underlying science, you know. So instead of going to technical details and saying, you know, I would like you to try this treatment option because, uh, let's say, it's a TNF alpha inhibitor, they would never say that, you know. They would try to. Present the available options with emphasis on benefits, on how this will help address specific symptoms, how to achieve certain desirable outcomes. They would never talk about the mechanism of action. Therefore, when I get into those discussions with non statisticians, I always try to emphasize the fact that uh, the proposed solution, be it a multiplicity adjustment, to adaptive design, helps address important regulatory requirements, but also does it in a very uh, meaningful way and something that uh, physicians, non-statisticians, sometimes even investors can relate to. But in general, I can tell you, you should be prepared to be challenged by multiple people because they will have different views uh, we have recently published, maybe I will talk about this later, we recently published a tutorial on multiplicity in the New England Journal of Medicine and uh, um, I have received um, quite a few interesting responses from readers. You know, there were physicians, you know, who felt very strongly that multiplicity adjustments are counterproductive. You know, they should be just just taking out of the, of the picture, you know, because it is, it is in fact, uh, a penalty, but when I bring this bring bring up this topic and begin discussing uh, the pros and cons of multiplicity adjustment you know uh, maybe that's why I use that biblical story this is essentially a price we'll have to pay for having additional flexibility and multiple shots and goal
2: mm-hmm. well, I think I think working with different stakeholders is kind of a um, challenge i think we, we had this in many of our podcasts before that we you know if you work with different people different topics so they have a different view of things so how to discuss it and so what is your for example i mean this is leading to the next question actually so what uh, we have um you know the, the different stakeholders um that you're working with and setting up as a trial with multi- using multiplicity have a different view on the priority and the importance of of variables or objectives, and therefore in the order of how to use the multiplicity or how to go to one of so, how do you do you manage this or is there any any guidance or any experience that you can share and how to, to work with different stakeholders on the use of uh, prioritization of the variables.
1: Yes, and that's right. That, that's, that's one of those very, very important topics in the life of a pharmaceutical clinical trial statistician. But uh, unfortunately, there are no uh, simple solutions here or hard and fast rules. This is something that um, comes uh, mostly with uh, experience. It would be difficult for me to give you a simple uh, set of recipes here. It all comes to your ability to essentially be a a, a good communicator. And I pointed out a couple of minutes ago, not to emphasize technical issues, certain certain things like, for example, why do I, as a a statistician, care about certain types of multiplicity adjustments? I really enjoy the fact that um, they have certain maybe optimal properties, but this is a purely mathematical uh, concept of course you know you need to really speak the language of uh, payers and physicians as you said you know I've had to work with investors investors speak a completely different language uh, maybe not directly uh, with them but with their with with uh, with their advisors you know so that's where you need to put on your consulting hat and really think about how to find the solution how how to explain the benefits the value of the solution that you're proposing without getting into too much into technical details of course
0: so i where whenever i went into that i always have said had that challenge that people might you know even agree on kind of a ranking of kind of okay that is the most important endpoint that's the second most important endpoint and so on and then there was the other question okay but what's the probability that we hit on these kind of different endpoints? Because you know the, the, the power to hit on one endpoint might be very different to the power to hit on another endpoint. And of course, they want to take that into account as well and kind of then kind of overall optimize that. How, how would you kind of approach that?
1: I guess, actually, I'm very glad that you mentioned the, uh, uh, the topic of optimization. I would love to come back to this later in this interview. But from a practical perspective, if, you know, push really comes to shove and in, in, in you're working with a project team that has very little relevant historical information to be able to order those secondary endpoints, I think it may be a good idea. That's what we've done on multiple occasions is to simply step away, walk away from the idea of applying that hierarchical testing approach, which is known as the fixed sequence testing procedure, and simply put not maybe all of those secondary endpoints, but at least some of them uh, into a single bucket and apply a multiplicity adjustment that does not require that you pre-specify the testing sequence. There are lots of those, that's where you let the data speak for themselves. That includes the Holm, uh, Hogberg, Hommel and many other um, multiplicity adjustments that rely on a data-driven hypothesis uh, ordering. And uh, we've shown if you apply uh, simulations under some plausible sets of uh, treatment effect assumptions to make sure show that in many cases this kind of a uh, approach would give you more power then uh, following a, a predefined sequence.
0: I, how do you define then power? Because kind of, I would guess you would have multiple different ways to define power if you have many, many different endpoints. So, so basically, you have a basic, you know, a power for each of these endpoints, and depending on how you set up your kind of. Uh, testing strategy you have you know for one endpoint you have m- more power than for another endpoint because you know an endpoint this is maybe you know coming later in the testing strategy is you know has overall less power because there's much higher chances that you know previous fail and you never come to, to come to that area oh.
1: that's you you're you're absolutely right exactly when it, when it comes to multiple. Uh, to to, uh, hypothesis testing problems with uh, multiple hypotheses, the concept of power is not really defined or maybe you should say it's not uniquely defined. And uh, there are actually quite a few papers uh, that have been written and published that simply deal with the topic of available uh, power definitions or success criteria definitions in in those cases. Probably the most basic one would be to ensure that at least one of those endpoints produces a significant result. That is uh, something that's that, that's been used in multiple clinical studies. I personally do not really like it that much because this definition it's known as disjunctive power, by the way, it kind of does not really uh, draw a line between outcomes that would be clinically completely distinct, you know. You can have five endpoints, all of them would be statistically significant and from the perspective of disjunctive power, it would be a successful outcome, or it can have a single significant endpoint and four non-significant ones. It would still be countered as a successful outcome. Yeah, so it's better actually. My, my personal preference recently has been to work with uh, weighted power. When you compute marginal power of each individual endpoint test, and then you add them up with appropriate weights that help you quantify the relative importance of each endpoint. This is a way to first of all account for relative importance of each endpoint, you know, and then you also account for the number of successful outcomes. And those definitions, that's the good news, you know, they're relatively robust to the choice of the weights. So that's something that we've actually done in several recent studies.
2: Okay, it's good to hear because otherwise my, my question would be: So how how do you define the weights? Then I mean, this is probably the same same as for you know de- defining the priority of the objectives itself. Then uh, how to define the weights in order to give them enough power for each of the uh, for each of the um, comparisons? So.
1: That's right. Yes, this uh, the weighted power is uh, is more forgiving. It's uh, less sensitive to the choice of those endpoint specific uh, weights, and in certain cases, those weights are actually uh, can be derived quite naturally when we look at multiplicity, for example problems that arise in clinical trials with multiple patient populations. So you have the overall patient population and you can have one, sometimes even two subsets, predefined subsets of the uh, patient population, then the importance of those subsets can be said to be uh, proportional to the relative size of those subsets. So that's where uh, weighted power can be defined in a, in a very objective way
0: yeah or you can kind of define it based on the anticipated value it has in the label or or you do even kind of a short preference survey with your <laughs> with your study team <laughs> to
1: that yeah yep. that that would be that that would be ideal yeah <laughs> so but, but um so,
0: so, so, yeah that's that's, I think so, where this comes especially into play is to have kind of a unique metric for which you can overall optimize your design and your, your multiplicity adjustment. Um, In a multifunctional team, and that's the. Still- <laughs>
2: <laughs> that's, uh, could, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's a challenging topic, really. I mean, it's, um,
0: yeah, I have one question as we talk about that was maybe more also with the internal stakeholders. um if we look into the external stakeholders, would it be possible, for example, to have different approaches for different stakeholders? So let's say that you have a different one for the email versus for u s regulatory?
1: That is actually, that is, that is now, I would say, uh, is becoming uh, more common. We all, we, I wouldn't say always talk, you know, but we uh, talk often enough about the fact that different regulatory uh, regions, if you will, different uh, regulatory uh, authorities may have different requirements for the choice of uh, primary and secondary endpoints. That's true for diabetes, for example. That's true for many other areas, such as rheumatoid arthritis. And therefore, you may see a protocol in which two different sets of primary analysis is essentially defined. One is for the purposes of U.S. submission, the other is for the purposes of uh, European Union submission. Likewise, uh, region-specific multiplicity adjustments can also be defined. It's actually—it's much. I guess it's just even more common than we may okay. realize. Okay. okay. So, so
0: when we have these um, submissions in many areas, um, these submissions, um, these regulatory submissions, consist of a package of studies. So you have um, maybe two studies or even more studies, and they, you know, maybe share the same objectives. Um, so, how do we deal with these kind of things if we have? two or more studies, could could you kind of have different alphas for, let's say, integrated analysis as well as for, um, you know, alphas for the individual studies or how do we, deal, how do you deal in this kind of way? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. Yeah. In that case, in, in that case, I guess we'll have to draw a line between the multiplicity adjustment um and general criteria, uh, testing criteria for the primary endpoints as opposed to key secondary endpoints. Because when we look at development programs that include several phase uh, three studies, which is once again very, very common in diabetes, for example, then there's a regulatory requirement that when we analyze the significance of the treatment effect based on the primary endpoint, then the results must be significant across the trials that were included in the development uh, program. So there's this very strict consistency criterion applied, and um, most of the time, as I understand, uh, when we uh, look at uh, combined pooled analysis across the studies, that those may be helpful to, of course, to to, to perform additional. Uh, sensitivity analysis uh, consistency heterogeneity those kinds of analysis but uh, those may be also used to potentially support pooled analysis of uh, key secondary endpoints and in that case in fact uh, it would be ideal And there's something that I've discussed on multiple occasions and I still feel very strongly that when it comes to applying multiplicity adjustments to key secondary endpoints, those tend to be underpowered to begin with. And therefore, and then we apply a multiplicity adjustment, which is also a penalty. So there is this trend that uh, the probability of success for secondary endpoints tend to be lower compared to the primary, primary endpoint or endpoints. And one way to address that would be to Uh, first pull um, two or maybe more phase three studies within the same development program and then apply a multiplicity adjustment for the secondary endpoints. That is something that has been discussed um, at at multiple conferences. In fact, there was was even a a, a white paper published on this topic, but uh, as far as I understand, this is not still a recommended approach. If you look at the... um, Draft guidance, multiple endpoints that was released by the Food and Drug Administration in the United States. This approach is not explicitly described there, but I think this would be this would be the the way to go. So this is how I would approach in general multiplicity issues in clinical development programs with two or more studies.
2: Okay, um, well, I think I mean. A question will come up after you know after people listen to to you and the questions and the answers that we had is, but where where do people get a good resources as for you know to learn about multiplicity? I mean, obviously they can take courses and you can read your books, but <laughs> I mean this is the obvious. But you know, is there any any good source that you can recommend where people can look up and and uh, you know get get a first. Um, First thoughts about it, or read good paper, good books. Um, what's your recommendation? Yeah, well,
1: yeah, I'll be happy to. Maybe, maybe I should begin with the obvious. <laughs> <you> know, <and laughs> talk about my own papers. Yeah. Uh, and it's not speakers, necessarily just my Tranquil, no. <laughs> yeah. everybody does it. You know, everybody. This is going to be a shameless plug from my own books. Yeah, <laughs> it's a, it's a time honored tradition. I would say, you know, that uh, there actually have been, uh, because of the general interest in the in the topic of multiplicity, and there's been so much work done in this area over the past 10, 15 years, which is actually a lot more compared to the decade before that. There have been quite a few nice review papers. I'm happy to have been able to contribute to some of them. In fact, uh, I have provided a list of... Um, recent uh, tutorials or review papers that were published for example in statistics in medicine and they will be available on the uh, on the webpage that will be set up yep. for this Just for this podcast check
0: yes. <laughs> and yep. podcast yep, yep. mhm mhm mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. yeah there have been papers and i've been happy to i've been lucky to collaborate with uh, professor Ralph D'Agostino, and there have been uh, papers um, published by, again, review papers by by uh, Dr. Frank Bratz and uh, FDA statisticians, Dr. Alok and Dr. Hawk, for example. And in fact, I would say, you know, that as far as statisticians are concerned, we do have a lot of resources available right, right now. And that's why we have started paying a bit more attention to developing writing tutorials for now for non-statisticians. That's why I'm so happy that our tutorial on multiplicity has finally been published it uh, came out in the New England Journal of Medicine uh, just uh, just a, a couple of weeks ago and at, at the end of May I should clarify and uh, I would also recommend in addition to those resources I would um, mention a variety of traditional and online courses that have become available I have become um, a big uh, fan and supporter of um, online training and um, relatively recently decided to go ahead and record um, several online training courses. I think it's a great option and because they're available 24 hours a day, seven uh, days a week, you can watch them in your spare time. You can skip a certain topic, which is not an option, which is available when you're taking a real training course because you have to power through sometimes. But in this case, you can basically choose the modules that would make most uh, sense to you and Maybe I can mention very quickly that the two online courses that I have recently recorded, they have been actually included in a uh, online training program sponsored by the biopharmaceutical section of the American Statistical Association. And this program provides a 50% discount on online training courses. I think it's a great deal. And you will again find information on this online training program on the podcast's website. I know that quite a few US and European pharmaceutical companies have taken advantage of this inexpensive and convenient option and hope that the listeners could also find those online courses useful.
0: Yes, for sure. And you'll, as as, uh, Alex said, you'll find all the links in in the show notes. So uh, actually, uh, beyond kind of these kind of uh, practical things, Web can people find you if they want some specific coaching from you or consulting from you on, on their specific submission?
1: Oh, thank you. They can, they can almost find me over here <laughs> in my office in Kansas City. <laughs> <laughs> if, you're, if you happen to live in Europe, if you're willing to fly over uh, the and Atlantic online? Ocean. I can... And online, exactly. I mean, I again, um, I've mentioned those online training courses. I, uh, maybe actually, as you said at the beginning of this uh, interview, um, my work right now is very similar to the work I used to do at Lilly and uh, at uh, Quintiles. I like to refer to it as strategic biostatistical consulting. I've been spending a lot more time on the development of statistical software. Maybe I can tell you a little bit more about the free software tools that uh, we have uh, developed. So I'm I'm very very still excited about um, doing consulting work on topics such as adaptive designs and of course multiplicity. This is my favorite topic as I've said. This is something that's been near and dear to my heart for for a number of years. So if the listeners have any multiplicity related questions, I would encourage them to contact me. Maybe you yes. can share again my contact information. Okay. Yeah, we'll do that. Very website.
0: good. Uh, so I think that was a great, great interview. And I think there was lots of very, very interesting topics in it on starting from why multiplicity uh, matters. And I think the, the story of the public story will be really in my mind from now on <laughs> with a very, very different view. On um, absolutely. And, and we, we, I think what also was very clear uh, for me is that um, As a statistician, you need to be a really good communicator, a really good teacher on these kind of things. um, Because this is not a very easy topic and actually applying it and making it happen for real life scenario is is really difficult. And having a clear understanding of what is the, the business background, um, managing all these different stakeholders is, is really important, but of course also it's important to be uh, you know up to date with all the uh, different methods and uh, techniques that are out there. There's, there's quite a lot uh, developed over the last years, and um, it's uh, it's 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 really nice that there's also this New England Journal of Medicine paper uh, uh, paper from you that we can help. It's it's quite nice if you have such a paper in hand to give it to, to your physicians as well. And, um, yeah, uh, just to sum up, you'll find all these details also in the show notes. So thanks a lot, Alex. That was great.
1: Well, thank you so much. I'm uh, once again, congratulations on your successful podcast. And, um, I wish you, I, 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 I wish you luck. And, um, I appreciate this opportunity to talk to you about my favorite topic in clinical trial statistics. Thank you so much.
2: Thanks, Alice. It was a pleasure.
0: This show was created in association with PSI. Thanks for listening. Please visit theeffectivestatistician.com to find the show notes and learn more about our podcast to boost your career as a statistician in the health sector. If you enjoyed the show, please tell your colleagues about it. That's the most effective way that we can help more statisticians benefiting from this podcast. Thanks a lot and stay tuned for next week's episode.